Hello and welcome to another episode of the Average to Athletic Podcast. Um, I suppose when I do these blog recaps, we're doing number 16 through 20. This is the combination of two of my pet projects in one. Uh, the, the the podcast is a chance to uh, you know, sometimes get to talk to cool people and, and work on my, my listening skills. And when it's just me reading, then I get to work on my uh, enunciation and pronunciation. So that that's always valuable. And then the blog is my chance to uh, figure out what I think and work through thoughts and flesh them out into actual codified concepts. So... You know, you get these blog recaps, which are a little bit of both. So without further ado, we've got five today talking about the long game, which is about discipline, weaponized health, which is about uh, taking back ownership of what you really understand about your body, um, why running hurts you, a pretty basic fundamental one about preparing to run well, 15-minute uh, rewilding, which is an idea of how to kind of reincorporate natural practices in your day with a minimal effective dose and then risk and reward. So understanding when making certain decisions are valuable, when the risk overcomes the reward, etc. So we'll get to that and uh, hopefully you don't hate me by the end of it. Number 16, the long game. When we start any endeavor, we think about things in the short term. This session, this game, this quarter, this year, we're getting dopamine hits from the novelty and excitement of rapid growth. Over time, that constant feedback lessens as we head into the long middle. We need different strategies to shift gears and play the long game. The key is to ask better questions. How will I remember this time when I look back in 10 years? What resources am I burning now that will bite me in the ass in five years? At a future time, I achieved my goal yesterday. What do I want to do today? We can't predict the future, but we can attend to the feedback of pain from our body. I'm sorting through this process now in my jiu-jitsu training. Two weeks ago, I had two shoulder subluxations, a worst fear of mine dealing with after dealing with dozens of subluxations or dislocations over the last decade. I've made it through 80 sessions of Brazilian jiu-jitsu in the last year, injury-free, and was doing well. After the first one, I wanted to downplay the instability of the shoulder, keep the momentum, and make it one class at a time. I'd survived class 82, but at the end of class 83, I had another incident. I hate quitting. I hate backing out of commitments. I hate dialing back intensity. It feels like failure. It feels like I'm opening space for uncertainty to fill the void that was once occupied by plans and objectives. Also, I get that letting go of this illusion of control is likely the meta lesson to learn here. But I realize that if I want to play the long game, if I want to be doing jujitsu for 10, 20, or 30 years, I have to play smarter and reframe from a bigger perspective. I am learning that there is a difference between quitting and redirecting. An analogy. Let's say you have a certain quote of energy units to expend each day. You can direct those to any pursuit, but they don't roll over if unused. Quitting is withdrawing energy units that have been previously purposed towards some outlet and letting them expire. Redirecting is updating your focus towards a problem that is undermining your long-term stability of your bigger pursuits and choosing to spend your energy there. When faced with a pain of any sort, you have a choice. You can quit. You can play the short game, which is ignore things, break things, then be forced to quit. Or you can play the long game, redirect efforts, fix the problem, come back better. All things come to an end. The point of most games is to keep playing them. The sooner you address pains, the more optionality you have in how you do it. P.S. I'm going back to the basics that I've gotten to slack on to adjust my shoulder. If you've got a bum shoulder and want help fixing it, I put a link to the program that is now free and you can do it. But a postscript edit here. So that I've just now finished class 162 of jujitsu. So ironically, now that I'm reading this, is I've gotten twice as much. And... I'm actually getting prepped for my competition um, coming up in about two weeks. So that's scary. But the ironic thing is I remember this this um, this moment. So I, like class 80, I had hit my first submission. So that's when you're rolling in jiu-jitsu and you get someone to tap. And I, like, I've never done any contact sport or any like physical martial art or anything like that. 
in the past. The closest I had was like third grade peewee football. So that shows you my length of physicality. Um, but, you know, this is a big, big jump of, I can have a lot of fear. So this is one of the reasons I waited so long to start. But I got in. And so I remember I was getting through class 80. I hit my first submission. And then class 81 or 82, I was like, oh, no. You know, it's like it was a big high and then a big low, which ironically I think always tends to happen. Um, maybe that's the, the archetypal pattern. But, you know, I, I going through that ended up being a situation where I had like two or three of these kind of pretty back-to-back. And it kind of makes you doubt things. But, you know, the challenge of doing something like jujitsu is like once you get in, you start to realize like how good it is, even though there's there's risk and there's challenge you don't like who you would be if you didn't keep doing it. And so, you know, I think some of those pieces are understanding that if you want to do something in a perspective, because the counter argument to this perspective, this, this blog is that, okay, you, you know, you do have to expend a lot of resources to get through break, to break, to break through the, the uh, stagnant friction at the very beginning. So for example, if you don't waste a bunch of fuel, you'll never break through the atmosphere on a spaceship that wants to launch out to the space or the moon or whatever it is. And so there's a challenge there, which is you do have to go above and beyond in something that's not sustainable. So you can't think, oh, I'm going to optimize forever. You can't think how I do this in 30 years, you know, in, if, in order to, you know, if you let the recency bias of what you're doing in a very high output at the short term affect you, you will never be able to break through the momentum and actually get through a confidence and learn some of the lessons and, and go through some of the challenges. And yes, that means there will be scars and challenges and pains and injuries. But if you don't also think about, you know, there will be a day after this, like there will be a time where, you know, this thing I'm doing becomes the past. And so what do I want to be true then? So it's kind of a balance of understanding those two narratives. And it's not like a problem to solve. It's just a continuum to adjust for as you go. So ultimately with this, what ended up happening is I had a, uh, I I kept working and kind of got back to some of these basics and you can kind of learn to play a game with jujitsu that like you protect certain things like I'm, I'll give up my right arm and let someone take my back for let them have my left arm in isolation so you know I played that for a while and then got a little bit more confident built that back up and then ultimately I realized the real problem is I didn't have good pec lat uh control and so I wasn't stabilizing the shoulder so the shoulder was on its own and you know it's one of those things if you keep humbly coming back you, you'll find the solution I think that's the point like the whole uh, those who seek will find and those who you knock the door will be answered concept is if I had just quit jujitsu because, oh, the thing I didn't want to have happen what happened, and, you know, then I would never have continued to search for it. Because it's one thing if you have a problem and then you remove yourself from that, that the constraint, meaning, oh, uh, my shoulder feels weak and I don't want to get it, you know, then I just remove myself from all the challenges that could otherwise injure it. That's one way to quote unquote solve it. But really, you're just you're, you're avoiding things. That's like saying. Well, I know my car can't turn right, but it's okay. I only do left turns. It's like, mm, you're really missing out on life there. But because I kept going back and it's like, I'm going to have to do this jujitsu and I'm going to have to do the shoulder instability, I found an answer. And knock on wood, my shoulder has felt stronger than it ever has. I'm actually to the point where I feel I can actually forget about my shoulder and just get into the role and be pretty competitive. It's not 100%, but it's better than it's ever been. And so I'm very happy about that. So I think the point is, you know, with this, like, you do have to think sometimes when you get in these, like, very constricted, contracted moments, and you feel like, oh, I only have any way, uh, there's no other way to do this. It's like, remember, there is a bigger time preference. So I think at least in this perspective is remember, there will be processes. And sometimes when you get so constricted in, in uh, diet, and like, can contracted on one problem, remember, there's another aspect of this to figure out. And that gives you a bigger perspective to work with. Number 17, weaponized health. Supposedly, we're the most technologically advanced civilization in history. 
and yet we're more confused about health than ever before. I think much of the uncertainty stems from a war between various factions of dogmatic thinking, mostly online. But instead of a good-bad face-off between Nazis and allied forces, it's more like eight-sided chess with each team making a claim to truth. I'm sure there's more. You get the silicone tech enthusiasts who want to biohack their way to immortality. Then there's the paleo-ancestral tribe who thinks that plastic is Satan incarnate. Then there's the all-meat faction who think that plants are trying to kill you. And of course the all-plant team who rank order dinner morality by how cute the animal face is. You have the hard-nosed pragmatists waiting for a study to prove the obvious, and the devout spiritualists who waver between wishful thinking and sheer ignorance, and the woke social justice warriors fighting the racist fascist for dominance in an unwinnable war of moral grandstanding monopolized by corporations and political parties. Then you have regular people that sit somewhere in the middle of each of these dichotomies with a slight lean to one side or the other. These ideologies function like a cancer consuming the host. They're incredibly contagious and spread through memes pieces of truth that can be manipulated to support any conclusion based on the context. Each ideology is fighting for attention, a battlefield that's fought by making claims about health, of the body, of the planet, of the soul. All arguments boil down to, this is bad for you because it's a sin against the ideal. The loudest voices are individuals totally possessed by the ideology. There is no thought, no question, no hesitation. They know the truth. They use the soapbox of social media to share flavored information about health that creates confusion about what should otherwise be simple questions. This is weaponized health. Pieces of truth lobbed as grenades at the enemy from echo chamber bunkers. But the only victims killed by the shrapnel of confusion are regular people. Innocent bystanders unfortunate enough to ask what seemed like straightforward questions about how to live. They are eaten alive by the war machine. If they're not scared away by the violence, back to their creature comforts, they often become unwittingly enlisted in one of the armies, a fresh soldier full of fervent belief about the new truth they've uncovered. And so the war rages on. The only way out is to become an independent thinker, question everything, find the truth in every argument but accept no one side is complete. You are an in of one. Your life is an experiment to try different things and report back to the collective with your findings. So long as you remember that what works for you isn't necessarily a prescription for a universal salvation, you will help slowly snuff out the fire of this war. It's messy and uncertain, but it's the only way to not become another casualty on the battlefield of weaponized health. A little postscript edit. I really like this one. I, this is one I remember when I wrote that and I had some of the uh, the words flow out. There's sometimes you sit down and you write and you're like, oh, gosh, that, that sounds good. That, that that flows pretty well, which probably means it's way too high, highly worded and and you know, fanciful for anybody to understand it, but I enjoyed it. So one thing in this context, because one of the things that uh, that spurred this argument was this, or this article was the confusion about things and, you know, having played a, a role in the social media stuff, like there's this kind of homeostasis that is basically life that exists. And so people pick a part of that and they make a belief. A belief is something you hold that is an unprovable thing, but it's based off of a partial truth. And so, like, you make a belief about something because you know, it's if it if you knew it hundred percent, it would wouldn't be a belief. It would just be trust. It would be a knowledge. Um, so, you know, it would be a fact. So, people will break or fracture certain pieces of truth to create an argument and a philosophy and a paradigm that then they say, oh, this is the way to do it. It's like, well, yeah, only if you exclude certain aspects. So one of the ways I've found that's been helpful for this, sorry, to finish that point, you see this with, oh, you should only do long distance conditioning and slow and steady stuff. You shouldn't exercise at all. You should only do strength training with heavy weights. Or you should only do it with you know, functional training, you know, there's everyone has a perspective. And almost always, if there's a business behind it, that's where they're going to try and direct you to. So the challenge here is that at face value, 
so many of the claims each camp makes in anything. I mean, this is you see this no truer than politics, um, especially in the United States. But the claims you see are almost contradictory to one another, meaning you should only eat meat. You should only eat plants. Like those two literally are contradictions to each other. So like, where's the, the, the middle gap? So in so much as you were interested in finding, let's say truth in, in some capacity, there's a an overlap. You can think of a Venn diagram. So especially if you have two different contradictory camps, if there's anything that they agree on, which is generally saying, you know, uh, the closer to the source or natural foods or things that, you know, aren't processed, you can find meta narratives in a sense that they all agree on. So you can generally kind of craft a messy and under indirect way to understand truth by triangulating, triangulating different perspectives and picking out, well, they say this and they say this. Okay, they seem to agree there. Okay. That means that that's closer to the truth. You know, in general, what you can figure out is that each perspective creates the end of a boundary. So, you know, like, let's say you should only eat plants, you should only eat uh, animals, like, okay, there's there's truth in the value of eating plants and the value of eating animals. So those create the end boundaries. Within that is a gray space, how many animals versus how many plants and vice versa. That's where you can start to create this, this gray space. Okay, that seems like it's more accurate. And then from there, you can start to narrow down based off the thing that they agree on. Okay, well, they both say you should eat unprocessed food and you should stay away from, uh, you know, artificial flavoring. Okay, that, you know, that's, that's helpful. So, like, you can kind of work your way in that. And that gives you a little bit more of a uh, confidence in saying, this seems like pretty much everybody agrees on it. And I think that's valuable. The thing you got to remember is you have to watch out for religious zealots within this. And so I don't mean that specifically, meaning like all oh, the Muslims or the Christians, like that may be a part of it. But as an example, those sects of people believe things that aren't necessarily rationally based. Now, rationality is its own thing. So like that's a very big different uh, concept, meaning like the fact that we think we can think about everything is a very, it's a very... It's a, a sinister trapping, it's very, very like, um, I can't find the word. It, it's a, um, a challenging notion because it's not true. Like we just don't know what we don't know. And if the rational, if we were rational, if perfectly rational, then we would have perfect knowledge. And if we had perfect knowledge, we'd be God. And so because we're not God, we don't know everything. So we can't say that we know everything because we don't know everything. And so it can, you can fool yourself into thinking you can know everything. So, you know, I want to say that while also understanding that there is a whole world of spirituality and the the domain of God, so to speak, that which we cannot understand that needs to be there. The challenge is when you become dogmatic about this thing that I can't prove and you can't prove exists. If, if no one can prove it, then no one has a claim to it, which means that people can't say it doesn't exist, but they can't also say it does exist. So there's a humility in that. So my point is when you encounter someone that is making claims about things that are religious in in dominion then there isn't a value in like there isn't a truth to be found in that per se meaning in terms of like tangible pragmatic aspects of like how to live your life those are things that you have to really balance a lived experience with and that gets a little messier so that's a whole different aspect to, to dive into but the point is if you come into like the vegan uh, ideology would be an example where that's not a nutrition-based thing. That's not that has nothing to do with a um, a health-based thing. That's a religious perspective about where they think of morality. And so you have to be mindful. Like when I'm trying to evaluate things on a nutrition spectrum, 
that is a different thing from a morality spectrum. They may factor in and you may have, you may want to add in another aspect to your decision-making process, but just understand that it can complicate the process by saying, this is good for the client. This is good for a small business. This is good for my morality and ethics. Those are all valuable things to understand, but that is not the same domain as nutrition. And so just start to like pull these things apart. It gives you a little more clarity, but you know, just more thoughts on that. If it wasn't already confusing enough. Number 18, why running hurts you. Running is an essential movement for humans. It's the next step after walking. Once we shift forward into a flight phase where both feet leave the ground, we're running. Essential movements should never hurt us. From the most simplistic perspective, we are a brain attached to a digestive tract. The spinal cord serves to innervate and connect limbs that move us toward food and away from danger. If we can manage that well enough to survive, then we look for mates to propagate our DNA compulsively as much as possible. To the extent that we need to protect that mate and offspring to see that propagation through, we'll maintain a physical capacity. Then we die. It's not sexy, but that's pretty much it. That's what our bodies are built for at the lowest level. And that's exactly what they should do perfectly. If we can't move, digest, or reproduce, then something is wrong at a fundamental level. Natural selection would have weeded out the genetic faults in the programming, so something must be interfering with the hardware development. Shoes, sitting, sedentary lifestyles, toxins, etc. The list is long. But our bodies are resilient and can handle disruptions to some extent. We are not the descendants of weak, dumb, or incapable humans. The biggest problem keeping you from running is relying on technology early on and skipping the basics. We're stuck in a chair when we should be learning to move. And then when it's time to play, we're stuck in organized sports with shoes and rules. Then things start to hurt and we blame our bodies. But pills, products, and procedures will never fix what is lacking from a deficit of play. Running hurts you because you aren't doing the basics. Skipping, jumping, bounding, crawling, rolling, running backwards, bouncing. Spending 30 plus minutes on a pristinely flat, hard surface with super shoes on is not it. There's a reason you run so much and still feel stiff, inflexible, and fragile. It's because you are. And that's only speeding up the aging process. Once to fix that, start over. Fresh. Learn to move, learn to play, learn to live. Your body is amazing and will come back to life. But you need to give it that chance. So a little postscript added here. This this idea came to me. I was just out working on some single leg bounds, and I realized I'd actually um, the winter prior, even though I've run for years and had some, you know, I'm the foot guy to all the stuff. It's like I had some calf issues and calf strains and some very basic stuff. And I was like, what is going on? And I realized like, oh, I'm skipping the basics. And so, you know, experts always like the true masters realize that like the the greatest things you're going to improve on come from studying and mastering the basics. And so we always skip those things. So, you know, I like the idea of understanding that we are highly competitive in terms of our overall place of the, the, the natural selection progression. It's like, I think there's only, you know, you have 33% of your ancestors are, are men. So most men never reproduce because they just didn't, they didn't survive or weren't competitive enough, weren't attractive enough to females. I mean, it's like, there's things like that that remind you that, you are not broken and weak and fragile. You come from a long line of total badasses. And I think that's really valuable and empowering because that tells you like, hey, you know, if there's something's not working in my body, there's an input I'm not getting or an, or an input I should be, I'm not getting that I, there's either an input I'm not getting that I need or an input I'm getting that I don't need. And that's, that's where you start to look at toxins and stuff like that. So the point is, if you want to run, if you want to be capable and athletic, it starts with building it from the the basics. And I really think you can't underestimate that. And if you just start by rediscovering, like, can I go walk in a minimalist shoe and feel the ground? Or can I walk barefoot even better? Can I work on hopping and skipping? This is the big uh, idea behind this the program and the actually the entire Unbreakable Academy, which is my main coaching process now. 
I mean, I've got a six-week free program, which, of course, I'll link below, but that'll kind of get you moving, get you out of stiffness and pain and, and reconnect your body. But then it's like, okay, how do we stack these things back on that we've kind of forgotten? So, like, how do we sit on the floor? How do we crawl? How do we hop? How do we skip? How do we bounce? And I think those things are very elementary. And if you build up on top of those, then you get to a really confident way to understand your body. And that makes me excited. So you can get this stuff back and you're built for it. It's just a matter of reclaiming it with the proper steps. Number 19, 15 minute rewilding. Pain is rampant. Metabolic disease is common. Bodies have become fragile, but I don't believe this is our natural condition. It's obvious that something is wrong. And it's also easy to point out the obvious, which helps no one. The problem is that we all want to believe the too good to be true promises that get pushed out by mar fancy marketing, supplements, surgeries, shoes, all simple products that require no real sacrifice. Funny how it's always wrapped in some convenient product. We're only hurt by the lives we believe. While solving these issues isn't easy, it is simple. And though the infantilization of people is way too common in the medical industry, it's unfair to think that we're all ready to make huge changes right away. I consider myself to be health, a health-conscious person that's conscientious, disciplined, and motivated, but at least a bit above the average human. But I also know how long it took me to build my current habits, and belittling anyone for taking baby steps is dumb. We all start somewhere. So that being said, this is how I would maximize 15 minutes of non-exercise time to begin the rewilding process for your body. Five minutes of fascial maneuvers barefoot outside on the grass. Four minutes of floor sitting or three points of contact or two points and one long bone on the ground. Three minutes of deep breathing. So box breathing, four second inhale, inhale four second exhale, four second hold. Sorry, four second inhale, four second hold, four second exhale, four second hold is the format for the box breathing. Two minutes of hanging or some type of supported vertical suspension, and one minute of a cold shower. Get a simple shower filter first, though. Ideally, do this first thing in the morning in this order. Each step gets a little less fun, but you build up momentum. That cold shower sucks, but you need it. To be clear, this is not enough to meaningfully change your body, but it's a great first step to clear your mind, orient your body, and move your tissue, and there is really no reason not to. Once you've gotten the ball rolling with a, a new internal identity as a healthy person, the rest of the necessary changes and expansions will happen in time. A little postscript comment, even though 15 minutes doesn't seem like a lot, this can be really valuable, especially if you start to stack up these things. So fashion maneuvers is huge. I'm a big fan of the human garage uh, people for that. If you fashion maneuvers outside barefoot on the grass, you're getting the circadian rhythm set from sunlight, a little bit of vitamin D exposure with the sun, you're breathing in the fresh air, you're moving all the tissue, and you're getting the grounding exchange with the, the free electrons from the earth. Deeply, deeply valuable. You're stacking like multiple things there. The floor sitting is valuable. You can, I just find think it's helpful to sit and you can just roll around. You can read something, you do whatever. Like I sit on the floor as much as possible. If I can sit there more, like, you know, a few hours a day, just, it's great. It's hugely beneficial. Three minutes of deep breathing. Sometimes it just opens up all the tissue in the inside of your torso and it gets your nervous system in a kind of a, a stable spot. Two minutes of hanging. I mean, that is so, so valuable because you have to decompress your spine and that hanging intentionally or legitimately remodels your shoulder. So if you have shoulder issues, hanging is the way to go. And then the cold shower is just some type of cold exposure. That's super valuable for getting a uh, some type of, it doesn't have to be anything crazy, but your, your cells produce their own water and they produce their own ultralight, ultraviolet light when in the exposure to cold when they're, the system's functioning properly. So a lot of benefit there. But just having this as a consistent staple like 15 minutes where you're just going boom, boom, boom through the morning, really valuable. You can really do a lot of benefit there, and I think that's going to get you started. And those consistent things you know you can do, that builds up a lot of momentum, and that takes you for the rest of the day in a really powerful way.
Number 20, risk and reward. Last week I learned that toilet paper, paper towels, and contact lenses all have BPAs, PFASs, and probably some other toxin that violates California's Prop 65. I aim to be health conscious with my best efforts, but it all just feels overwhelming. In a world where everything causes cancer, is it even possible to be healthy? Sometimes it feels like the more you learn, the less happy you become. Maybe that's what God meant by telling Adam and Eve to avoid the tree of knowledge. Seriously, there was a time where I could eat a cinnamon roll for breakfast, frosted flakes for lunch, and have pizza for dinner with a soda and couldn't be happier. And now, well, gluten, pesticides, preservatives, seed oils, food dyes, added sugars, microplastics, global warming, child labor, you know. With health being weaponized, it's hard to know who to trust. I tend to err on the side of, if it wasn't here 100 years ago, it shouldn't be in me. But the reality is it's not that simple. The things we invent do have benefits. Take contact lenses, for example. Sure, they may be slowly leaching into my bloodstream and killing me softly, but they gave me a life I wouldn't have otherwise. Sports, activity, and physical movement are one of the greatest joys of my life, and they don't mix well with Coke bottle thick glasses or rec specs. I'm working to wear them less by training my eyesight and doing more stuff sans eyewear, but will I still wear contact lenses until a better option pops up? Yep. And no, eye surgery for my pupil problems isn't effective yet. I already checked. Healthy is an elusive measurement but it's just one factor. We also need to factor in the risk-reward ratio as well. The reality is that we just don't know how problematic this stuff is. Are phthalates, glyphosate, and Red 40 going to end human civilization? I guess we're going to find out. And even if they stop using these things, they'll just replace it with something else that gives you cancer, which we'll find out in 20 years. Ultimately, you have to protect yourself, limit exposure to the uncertainties, and make the best decisions you can. It's a lot of work, unfortunately, but the alternative sucks. These are three heuristic razors I use to keep my life a little simpler. Binary, this or that decisions are straightforward. If you can narrow down the parameters to one metric, it's easy. For example, organic or regular? Organic. In so much as you can, don't let money be the deciding factor. If there is a meaningful health, quality, or utility difference, go with the higher value one. Choosing where to spend money is an issue of priorities, and most people are irrational with their spending. Zoom out and refocus on what really matters. Upfront systems choices are simple. Install a water filter, shower filter, air filter, etc. This takes the mental load out of each decision. Just live normally, letting the automated system work. Boundary decisions work well too. Choosing to eliminate certain things altogether works well when they're obviously detrimental. Like smoking cigarettes, it's not really a decision, even if someone offers you one. There are boundaries, part of your identity. And then there's the rest of life. There is no such thing as perfect. Besides, per the perfect routine we live now will fall victim to two inevitable outcomes. We learn something new about a thing we should be doing. We learn something new about a thing we shouldn't be doing. You'll drop the perfect ball eventually, so go ahead and preemptively set it down. That doesn't mean you don't try, though. Make your home a fortress. Figure out the boundaries, the binaries, and the systems that will make, you as, many, make as many decisions easy for you as possible. Then, when you go out to eat occasionally, travel or go to a party and have a slice of cake, God forbid, you can enjoy it knowing that you've got the bases covered. A little post-comment. I really think that this is a valuable heuristic to to try and find sanity in the world because it just the second you start to open up your eyes and look at different things, you realize like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. And at some point, it's like it's your responsibility to protect yourself. Yes, there's this value in having you know government oversight in certain aspects, but like, you know, you really you had you, you got to take responsibility for your, your own body. So, you know, for example, as a personal thing, I, I know my. My parents have had some uh, very unfortunate neurological uh, diseases that have, you know, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, that have kind of preemptively cut their life very short. Uh, they're still alive, but they just haven't aged well. But part of that is an exposure to radon gas. And so they, my mom did a radon test, and they found out the house is super high, but 
you know, it wasn't something I was a priority to deal with. And then it comes to bite you in the ass later. So, you know, there's a handful of things that really like if you prioritize and put your money towards it, it's incredibly important. So like I said, people aren't rational with their money. They'll spend 80 bucks going out to get drinks and eating out, but they'll think $80 for an air filter is too expensive. So like, you know, if air you breathe, the water you drink, the, you know, the way you sleep, those, that's, that's huge. Like, you know, it's hard to over, overstate that. And I think the one-time decision, if you dollar cost average out a, a, like I use an eight sleep mattress and it's phenomenal. It's made sleeping between me and my fiance phenomenal because we just have different temperature preferences and that's huge. That was like $4,000. But if I dollar cost average that over the 10 years that I'll use it, you know, that's not that much. The same thing for a water filter, or air filter, like those things make a big difference. And so, you know, ultimately we look at money in some capacity and this is, you know, this is my perspective. So I'm probably wrong. I'm definitely wrong. So something I thought about a fair amount is the idea that we look at money and we kind of think, Oh, well, there's this idea of like discretionary income and it, there's, and that's a, like a consumeristic lie. It's like, you should have money to go buy nice things. It's like, maybe or buy things you want like you know entertainment and stuff but historically money is just a stored form of energy so meaning i want to you know sell you things and i don't need a cow so like you don't have any trade so we'll trade money as a agreed upon form of exchange but really i take the product of my energy and invest that and put turn it into money and then i use that money to trade you because it's an equal exchange equal value agreed upon and worth so Historically, though, I would have spent the majority of my energy on food, shelter, and, you know, food, shelter, water, security, and that would have been the, that, that would have been almost all my money went there. So the idea that housing, I mean, the housing, that's a up in the air thing, but like, you know, food and, and shelter and security is expensive is like, yes, that's always how it's always been. The fact that we have any money left over is the crazy part. So, you know, it's just an, like a reset of like, the markets get driven down artificially low by things that they pass. Corporations can make food incredibly cheap, which is an amazing thing, and it creates a uh, an excess of energy so we can solve hunger. But it passes the externality down of like whether how that impacts the local environment, the climate, the people that are paid for or not paid for the work they do. Those externalities are the true cost, and they get passed down through government government subsidies or just debts that need to be paid off in the future. And that's why it looks cheap now. And that makes it seem like a hamburger should cost a dollar. It doesn't cost a dollar, you know. And so that's when it starts to seem like, oh, I have all this money left over. I could spend on credit. And then it makes it seem like, oh, I could do this. Why is that so expensive to buy a pound of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef? It's like, that's the cost of it. It just seems cheap because of this other way that has externalities borne out somewhere else. And so, you know, you pay for it one way. You either pay for it on the front end with active choosing to prioritize and protect your health as much as you can. Again, there's no perfect or you pay for it afterwards, which is going to be in times from the hospital, medical bills and medications. And that's a certain type of hell. So just my two thoughts on that. But I really, really recommend if you can find some of these things, whether they're systems, boundary decisions and upfront uh, or binary choices and just stick with those. You end up feeling like things are more expensive now, but you end up just paying for the inevitable bill ahead of time. And I think it makes a big difference. So there you are. And there you have it, another episode of the Average to Athletic Podcast. Again, blog recaps number 16 through 20. I like this. It's a little spicier today. So um, I just finished up writing blog 200, so there's a lot more of these to go, but I'm excited for that. And then, you know, we'll just see where we get to. But otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this. 
I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, you can message me on social media or, or, you know, I don't know if you can comment, but rate, review, subscribe. And if you don't like it, you'll have to listen. So that's the beauty of a free choice with free worlds. But I appreciate you for sticking with me. I hope you value this and I hope you got some information that you enjoyed. And um, I'll put the links to the individual podcast or links and stuff below uh, this in the description. Have a fantastic day.